0: You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. So really quickly, I just need to explain why I so desperately need you to support my podcast. Currently, I'm bringing in enough to cover the expenses of producing my show, but there's not much left over after all the bills have been paid. One big thing on my wish list for this year is I really want to take my show to the AVN convention. But that is going to cost me a fortune, and I cannot do it without your help. Imagine all the amazing interviews I can get there in the middle of the biggest porn expo in the world. There's so much more I want to do with this show, but I don't want to bore you with all the details, and I know you want to get back to the interview. So I will say this. Please seriously consider supporting the show that you love so much. You can join my Patreon for as little as $5. And get access to the interview streaming live, as well as lots of other bonus content you cannot get anywhere else. There's also a lot more that I offer if you can afford to shell out a few more bucks. So go check out everything that I have to offer at patreon.com/slash Unfiltered. Now, if you really can't or don't want to, for whatever reason, support my Patreon, please consider purchasing something from one of my sponsors. Just make sure you use my code. They will only come back to sponsor more episodes if they see their investment paying off. Thank you guys so much. And if you have any questions or concerns, please feel free to email me at hollyrandallunfiltered at gmail.com. Hey, everyone. I have some very exciting news for you. I am going to have one of my most popular podcast guests back on the show, the amazing Nicole Aniston. And not only that, we are going to stream our interview live for free to everybody as it happens. So August 28th at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, if you log into either my YouTube site, youtube.com slash Unfiltered, or if you join my Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash holly unfiltered, you will be able to watch the interview live and even submit some of your own questions. So make sure that you join us. That's August 28th at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for my interview with Nicole Aniston. Today, my guest is John Stagliano, a literal living legend in the porn industry. He's considered one of the pioneers of the gonzo porn style which essentially is breaking the fourth wall and accepting the camera as a character in the scene. This genre of shooting now dominates the landscape of porn and Jean is a big part of that. He also created the fashionistas an award-winning erotic film that had a budget of $500,000. And it's considered to be one of the greatest adult movies ever made. He's even made it into a theatrical dance show that played in Vegas for about four years. Alongside John's accolades, he's also been the center of so many important and controversial issues in our world, HIV, consent, and obscenity. We actually never get to talk about the obscenity case that he fought and won back in 2008, which is a shame, but there's so much to John's life that we just didn't have time to cover it all. So I highly recommend you look that up and read about it. So we've established that John is an incredibly significant and well-respected figure in the adult industry, but it's difficult to be such a big player in porn for so many years and avoid controversy altogether. And, and this is where things get a little bit tricky. If you listened to my episode with Ginger Banks, you know that she had some issues around her pro porn debut Cam Girls, which she shot for Evil Angel and her issues um, specifically related to John. So he asked to come on to tell his side of the story, which of course is only fair. And I want to actually thank Ginger for being so cool about me interviewing John. When I told her I was going to have him on, she agreed that he should be able to tell his side of the story and that everyone should have their say. So I thought that was a real testament to Ginger's character. So Ginger, thank you for that. Now I need to say some things right off the bat about this interview before you listen to it this was a very difficult conversation for me to navigate because I like and respect ginger and I like and respect John. And to be honest, I don't know either of them terribly well, nor did I have any part in their dispute whatsoever. So it's at this moment in which we are discussing some pretty serious subjects that I feel a little bit unqualified as an interviewer. Don't forget that this new career trajectory of mine a a podcaster, I guess is what you call it. It's still something very new to me. This podcast is only two years old. I never went to school for journalism. I don't have years of experience as an interviewer. I am definitely learning as I go along. And, you know, it's all fine and good when we're having positive conversations about one's experience in porn or relating funny stories. But when faced with a controversy where one person says one thing and another person says another, and I can see both sides to the story, how do I handle that? I honestly never pick sides in porn drama. In fact, I do my best to stay out of it. And it seems that I have now willingly plunked myself right into the center of it. Because in the end, I am a part of the industry. I do work with these people on a regular basis. And overall, I really like all of them. Okay, maybe not All of them, but everyone mentioned in today's interview, for sure. I'm not some outside interviewer who can piss someone off with a careless remark or allow an accusation to ride without challenging it and not somehow have it come back and bite me in the ass. These are my colleagues, these are my coworkers. I don't get to write off their experiences as some one time human interest story that I covered and be done with it. So, how do I handle this kind of controversy that has come up on my show? Do I want everyone to like me and want to work with me and therefore produce some kind of bubblegum podcast where everyone is happy and proud of their choices? Or do I want to allow people to talk about their real experiences in hopes that we can open up a dialogue about some of the problems that plague our industry? How do I provide a place where people feel safe enough to open up, all the while maintaining a fair playing field where people who feel wrongly accused? can also talk about their side of the story. I guess the answer is right here, right now, is me trying to figure that all out. And I don't mean to make this whole episode about me, which clearly have done very well with this long and rambling intro. But you know, I've always tried to be really honest on this show. And I think that I've been pretty vulnerable with you, my listeners, in the past. So why stop now? I'm incapable of pretending to be something I am not, so here are all my fears and insecurities laid out for you all to gawk at, just in case, you know, you think, I seem like I got this. I know we all really like stories to end neatly, to be tied up with a little bow at its conclusion— I'd love to be the kind of host who can give some kind of poignant reflection on the episode that will have this all make sense and will clearly delineate maybe who's the bad guy and who's the good guy and what exactly the problem is and how we're going to fix it. But that's just not the case here. In fact, I don't want there to be any bad guys at all. And I don't think there are. Just different people with different experiences telling their story as they believe it happened to them. And maybe in the end, we can all learn something from it. So, thank you, John and Ginger, for trusting me with these stories. And I really hope that we all take away something valuable and worthwhile from them. I know that I did. So, without further ado, let me introduce the man, the myth, the legend, the father of gonzo porn, John Stagliano. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have um, a legendary man in the adult industry, and I'm very excited to have him here today. I've actually been pestering him for a little while to get him on the podcast and uh, finally finally here We did
1: talk about it once before we did something.
0: talk about yeah, it yeah it was in my head when i yes was and then you promptly me. forgot about it because i don't yeah, know you I might know, have a whole I company know, to run
1: podcast what's a podcast <laughs> when you asked me i probably didn't even know what a podcast was. so
0: i should probably tell you all that is john stagliano so hello john i also completely forgot i've been so distracted this week to tell you that we should put on our headphones, our headphones.
1: Okay, there's sound oh coming my through You can hear what's being recorded.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: okay but my
0: ear <sighs> I am wrong. not on top of things today. This is wrong. This I left. Is wrong. The, this there is, is going to take forever. <laughs> <laughs> I left the bathroom key in the bathroom. I forgot to put my headphones on. You have me all a flutter.
1: Wow. <laughs> wow. I hope that's a positive thing.
0: <laughs> so. um as I as I mentioned previously, my mother says hello. Um,
1: can I turn these down a little bit? This is a little loud.
0: You don't like my, my voice? Head. Oh yeah! Screaming in if your we ear. We can talk like this. <laughs> that as- ASMR. Yes. How does that sound? Is that okay? That's perfect. About, about okay. It. Thank cool. You. Um because you're one of the few people in the industry that my mom that's still in the industry that my mom recognizes or remembers because you know it's it's been a long time and it's full of new people. Um so how long have you exactly been working in the adult exactly. industry?
1: Way before you were born, young lady.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Um,
1: I answered an ad at the UCLA Placement Center in mm-hmm. 1973 when I was a student there. I was mm-hmm. looking for part-time work and Bill Margold was running Pretty Girl International. You might know who these are.
0: Oh, yeah. I know
1: who Bill Margold is. And he was looking for girls. Yeah. But I answered it, and I said I was a writer also, whatever. I came in, visited him. I wrote a couple stories for his little porno newspaper that was on newsstands. It was called Yes Mm -hmm. was the name of it. And I wrote the first one. He liked it. He published it. I got paid a penny a word. $14.50. Fourteen dollars and fifty cents. Wow! And uh, then he sent me out on a job to do a little caning thing. I got paid thirty-five bucks, and uh, I wrote a story about that. And then he put me, sent me out on some other jobs. I wound up doing a little bit of hardcore. I wrote, now,
0: performing in it or directing it? Performing, performing. Because oh, you started off as a no, performer, talking,
1: right? I was barely twenty-one years old. Okay. And uh, and then I uh, started directing not until ten years later.
0: Okay. So So how, I mean, were you you ever, did you ever have dreams of getting the adult industry or was you just kind of accidentally fell into it?
1: I was sneaking porn books from my father's uh,
0: place. Books? What are books?
1: I don't know. We're talking the 60s (laughs) here. It's the magazine. I realized. It's the internet made out of trees. (laughs) He had something hidden under the seat of his car. Uh, (laughs) We're talking the mid-60s here.
0: So when you say books, though, you don't mean magazines?
1: there was a fiction story with a cool cover. There was a newspaper type thing uh-huh. with a couple of pictures in it. Uh-huh. I can distinctly remember to this day. Yeah. And uh, I think my father realized what I was doing. And anyway, that got shut down. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, but I, and then, you know, I've always been interested in porn. Right. More interested than possibly was normal, although I've heard that other people are the same. Yeah. So, uh, you know kids jerk off when they're in, they reach puberty, yeah, yeah, well, it's so, uh, normal
0: part of adolescence,
1: yeah, yeah, and some people maybe do it to excess, perhaps, maybe it gets in the way of their life, maybe it I don't know, I did want to be a baseball player, however I wasn't uh i I let my addiction my addiction to porn, let's see, do I have an addiction to porn <laughs> I don't know, I certainly enjoy looking at it. Well, I mean, you've
0: made a career out of it. So, yeah, the whole question of is there is porn an addiction issue is something that's certainly been controversial over the years. I had Dr. David Lay on um, a while ago, and he says that not a, it is not a real addiction. Um, I, I have experience with addiction. I've never had experience with porn addiction. Um, I think anything that releases dopamine and makes you feel good and makes you experience pleasure can be something that can at least be habit forming in a negative way because you know, as human beings, we're pleasure yes. seekers. I mean, anything yes. it can yeah. be anything. It'd be food, exercise.
1: I, I tend to watch too much baseball.
0: There you so go. You have addiction to my baseball. My son
1: would say I'm addicted to it because he <laughs> wants me to play video games, which he arguably is addicted to. So right. Whatever.
0: Well, it's just, we're all battling something. Yes. Um, So, you started off as a performer, and how did you transition into directing? How did that come about?
1: Well, I uh, did still picture layouts in the early 80s, Mm -hmm. where I performed halfway decent. There did my
0: mom ever shoot you?
1: Yes, once. 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 Okay. And I and I was really horny that day. <laughs> I had a hard on a lot of the time, like almost the whole time. It was crazy. One of the rare experiences because I'm not very good but, as a performer. It, but isn't generally. it?
0: Wasn't it back then? You weren't supposed to have a complete hard on. It was yeah, supposed to be well, like a seventy-five it was like supposed to
1: be hidden, like half the way. like half, that half hard. Know. Hey, you know, with my dick, excuse me, um, <laughs> I did want to call my biography "Never a So Little Gone So Far." <laughs> at one point in time, and I might still title a chapter in my biography that. But uh, uh, no, I wasn't that well, en- I'm not that well endowed, but it's a- average, very just average. It's not bad, it's how you use it. right? I agree. And I feel like I have a good amount of skill. Yeah. But enough of that rationalization. Um, uh, it went well, I thought. It was really fun, and she only used me once, probably because I wasn't that well endowed. <laughs> I don't know.
0: But, uh, how was the experience?
1: It was really fun. Seriously, what I was she like to shoot for? She was very relaxed. I thought, yeah, very easy to work for. Yeah.
0: So, do you remember yeah. who your
1: co-star was? No, some girl who wasn't. This we're talking the eighties here, like early eighties.
0: Mm. Um, because we we probably unless she was shooting an exclusive for a magazine, which she didn't do very often, we must still have that film.
1: Well, it was a it was stills, I think.
0: Right, the, right. But I mean, film like stills, film.
1: film. Yeah. You know, film is also still. it's not memorable. I mean,
0: I enjoyed myself. (laughs) Do you remember the concept or anything like that? Or was it just like a bedroom scene? Like an 80s bedroom Um, scene?
1: We wound up, uh, we did some inside stuff, and then we did some outside stuff in a house that was on the beach in Santa Monica, and that stretched below the bluffs there. Hmm. A really expensive house. Wow, yeah. And uh, it was interesting.
0: Do you remember Um, what magazine it was in?
1: No idea. I never saw it. Hmm.
0: Okay, I'm so, gonna have to try to hunt that down. Yeah. So, you're a performer, but you don't feel that you were yeah. all that great at it.
1: I was, I would like, you know, do a couple things and get a girlfriend and not do it for this was in the 70s and there wasn't much work. I mean, there right. were loops, which I did a couple, and then there were films, which I did a couple.
0: Can you explain the difference between the two?
1: A loop is just like a sex movie that goes in a peep show in the 1970s, often without sound. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would play, they call it a loop because it would loop. It would like play to the end and then it would start at the beginning again in a loop.
0: And this is where you would go and like put a quarter in and go get your own booth. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: I did a couple of those. I wasn't great at that Mm -hmm. either. Although my picture was in the LA times in like 76 or something like that, where I'm on my motorcycle was for a movie called, well, probably not acceptable today it was called high school honeys
0: mm-hmm. and <laughs> yes <laughs> T-
1: titus moody took the picture in front of his house and it wound up in an ad for i didn't even know if it was a Pussycat theaters it might have been a lower rung adult theater they did they stopped running adult movie theater ads in like the 80s right or right something in right. the la times okay so, um i did a few of those in fact that scene in high school honeys was one of the few good scenes i did mm-hmm. and then i did a More than half were probably mediocre scenes, which is probably why I didn't work very much. Right? Because I I wouldn't hire myself. Go on. Every (laughs) once in a while, I put myself in a movie, and most of the time it was okay because I was very careful. But most of the time, wasn't very good. Even as but I'm only in a half handful of scenes.
0: Right. I mean, you know, and and I think that that's a a great kind of you know a thing for you to admit because so many guys think they can be a porn star because they like sex or they like porn. But I don't think people realize how difficult it is to perform in front of the camera. It's a whole other beast. It's not
1: like sex.
0: No, not at all.
1: It's not not the same. I mean, yes, you can have that same response. But when there's people expecting it to happen, it's very different. And uh, I think that really horny guys are much more um, cut out for, for porn. Yeah. Where where you can overcome the distractions that is a fundamental thing and I was pretty horny but I probably jerked off too much I don't know <laughs> whatever and I wasn't virile enough right to uh, to do it very well yeah so
0: yeah it takes like a real focus and an, ab- an ability to be able to like really zone in and 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 filter out the yes. distractions especially because it's not just about like. Being hard on command and being able to have sex with somebody that you may not have good chemistry with, and being able to open up for the camera, but also being able, having to come on command as well. I mean, there's so many different.
1: Yes, to control it. And yeah, stuff. Yeah. it's just
0: it's a whole. I other did
1: thing. do one shoot for a private thing. Roy mm-hmm. Roy Karch directed. I don't know if you know. Oh
0: yeah, Karch I was you. It. Yeah. this
1: was 1980. 1980- Three, uh-huh. two, something. Right. Where he hired me with this girl. So sexy. And I was like performing and we're fucking. Of course, this is not like today's fucking.
2: Right.
1: Uh, you know, we're fucking. And the guy says, well, can you do the cum shot? And I said, yeah, anytime you want. He said, well, how about if we do a countdown? And I said, yeah, sure. What the heck? So we were like, you know, could control it. I'm pretty good at controlling it. Right. In private, mostly. On right. camera, it's not so easy. Yeah. But I was on this time, and there was a camera, and there was another guy there, and it was like, he was like, this was for a private thing. I don't know. The pressure wasn't there. And I did come right on cue. Just have to brag. So uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that was the high point of my porn career. <laughs> it was all downhill from there, pretty
0: much. Well, I don't know. I mean, it all depends on how you look at it, because... As we mentioned, you became a director and then you ended up like starting and running a very successful company that is still, you know, one of the top companies today. So can how did that come about? What was the first well, thing that you directed and how did well, that opportunity present itself?
1: So Pretty Girl International, which mm-hmm. was not run at the time, uh, uh, Bill Margold. Turned it over to David House, who was a still photographer. He had mm-hmm. shot me a half a dozen times. I was pretty good at stills. Mm-hmm. I was lighter. was a male stripper. I was in the first show at Chippendales. Really? Yeah. Oh,
0: my gosh.
1: I've had a lot. I entered puberty at the time of the sexual revolution in the 60s. Right. Um, so I've had an interesting life in that regard. And uh, anyway, so I did still pictures for David. I did still pictures for other people. And this was 81, 82, and 83, and 83. David was saying, well, there's this thing where people are shooting on video and not film, and it's a lot cheaper. And uh, I have this guy, this photographer that, um, or filmographer that, that I'm working with named Bruce Seven, mm-hmm. who you might remember. Um, you don't remember Bruce? God, nobody
0: remembers Bruce. I may not. Know. Guy. Well, don't forget, anyway. my mom was more entrenched in the photo world yeah. than the video world. She did yeah. do some movies, but it was really more about photography for her. Especially when I started working for her, so I'm more familiar with that side. Bruce of the was, industry. yeah,
1: Bruce was pretty popular uh, in the eight, late eighties and mm-hmm. up into the early nineties. He did some stuff. Uh, and uh, anyway, so Bruce was producing another video he had worked in the movie studios and stuff and i met bruce with david house Mm -hmm. and we concocted a plan Mm -hmm. where bruce would be the cameraman and we'd rent his house and rent his camera and me and david house would split the movie and i i wound up financing most of it but it was david's would be this still cameraman for free and he Mm -hmm. would help organize it and get the casting and all that stuff and the first scene um David was going to be the videographer, the cameraman, and he missed the cum shot because he was worried about Bruce Seven shooting the stills and they were trading and he just like said, Oh, okay, maybe I can't do this.
0: Wait, how did he miss it? Was he like because he somewhere was, he,
1: else? He, he turned the camera off while Bruce was getting stills and and the actor – who was a friend of mine came when he wasn't supposed to or something. Oh. I don't know. It was. because you guys I mean, were like
0: trading off still. Yeah, yeah.
1: It time. was uh, a little different world. People weren't as competent. It's still an issue. You know, you yeah. got to worry about missing the gum shot. Yeah.
0: Miss the gum shot. Well, yeah. It's really bad. But, well, so can, but <laughs> for stills, we I don't know about you actually, but you can we fake it. We fake it with setup. Yeah, so. know, that's
1: <laughs> anyway i don't like faking it but in any case so david was feeling insecure and he said well just pay me as a still photographer for these two days that we're shooting and and you keep the movie because it was all my money anyway i was good at saving money mm. i made a thousand dollars a week in may of 1983 as a male stripper i did stripping telegrams and i did clubs and i saved all my pennies and uh i also won a dance contest called shake it sexy which was on the playboy channel uh-huh. and i we split a five thousand dollar prize i won two hundred and fifty two thousand five hundred with this girl we uh-huh. did a couple's thing and i needed that money i yeah. didn't think i was going to need it but i wound up needing it because editing cost as much as the movie The movie cost four thousand to make the editing cost four thousand
0: really because
1: we edited at a production house right they were doing lifestyles of the rips rich, rich and famous there yeah. at the same time i don't know robin leach's thing yeah who subsequently became a friend of mine and an acquaintance in vegas oh
0: interesting
1: um anyway so that was expensive to rent that and uh and we shot on pneumatic tape and whatever, mm-hmm. and it was a horrible movie. But it's called Bouncing Buns. We had a pretty good star, <laughs> Kelly, who wound up crying in the middle of the last scene when she said she didn't wasn't sure she wanted to do it, and I don't know, what the fuck. Oh, dear. Um, and then she was fine, and she went on to become a star in the business for a while. But this huh. was her first day shooting. It was her first scene. She'd only done Girl, Girl for Bruce 7 before that. This right. was 83. Yeah, there yeah, yeah. was no porn business. People were a lot treated us more like criminals back then, yeah. I hate to say it. Yeah. Um, but then she understood the business and got into it. I mean, it was another guy. The scene she was doing was with another male stripper friend of mine that I knew. Right. Who was a really horny guy. Right, like, with right. A big, with a much bigger dick. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Woody Long was his name. Okay. His stage name. So.
0: Don't remember him.
1: No, I don't think he would.
0: No. But, uh, so you did that movie. And then yeah. how did, and then did you. So
1: I wound up owning it. Okay. I said to Bruce Seven, "Help me edit it and help me sell it, and I'll give you ten percent of the gross." And I did. Mm-hmm. And I spent eight thousand dollars on that movie. Got back like twenty-four thousand with no foreign sales, no ancillary. That was only from a royalty deal with VCA.
0: I was going to ask who and, distributed it. Okay, and and then
1: VCA. VCA bought out my remaining royalties at some point in time. Two years later, mm-hmm. the money had uh, gone down, but. You could make a lot back then, if mm-hmm. you and and I, you know, made we made Bruce and I became partners then after that, right? And we made movies together right. for a while, and then Bruce got the deal to do the first contract girl exclusive movies for Vivid, which was a brand new company in eighty four. Mm-hmm. Ginger Lynn was the star. Oh wow! And Bruce shot those movies, and I went off and shot stuff for different companies and sold them. I'd shoot them for. Like, you know, eight, ten thousand dollars 10000 and sell them for twelve, thirteen thousand dollars
2: 13000
1: whatever. And I did that for several years in the 80s, and I got better and better at that. Right. To the point where I also started getting rid of production people because I found that a more intimate set, from my point of view as an mm-hmm. actor, was always better. Right. I didn't want to have a boom man, you know, in there. Why not put the mic on the camera? Right. You know, we had a videographer. Do I really need a videographer? Because I can see exactly what's going on in the right. viewfinder. It was a little bit more difficult then, and I mm-hmm. might have messed up some shots, but did I really need a videographer? I kind of not really. Yeah. So, you know, and I could do the PA work myself, and then I whittled that down to shooting one scene a day if I wanted to. I was the first person, I think, to do that. Uh-huh. The standard before was you shoot the whole movie in one day, or yeah, you do it in two days or something. to me. So one of the many things I'll brag about today is <laughs> that uh, I think I was the first person who – did for mainstream companies the idea of shooting one scene a day, the best possible scene you can shoot with a girl. Mm-hmm. Because in the 80s, um, people would pay more money for features. right? And if it was considered a loop, like I was talking to you before, which right. would be just a sex scene right. by itself, like a vignette today, mm-hmm. that sold for less money. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get as much in the marketplace. So right. the people who were buying my movies – and this was 83 to 89, end of 88, whatever – I was selling these movies to VCA, Caballero, uh, um, VCR Mm -hmm. was a company I sold to. Um, Mm -hmm. And then in 88, I uh, shot a couple movies with my own money. I was supposed to sell it to VCA. They said they couldn't cut the soft version. I said, you're crazy. And I wound up cutting a soft version myself for these two movies a year later easily. That's my vindictive Mm
2: -hmm. self
1: but it was actually really good because because at the time I was talking to somebody named Ed DeRue Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: Linda Corso they had um totally nasty video and before that they started foreplay which went on to be run by uh Ed Powers Mm -hmm. um was bought by Ruben Sturman actually and Ed Powers was the figurehead and Ed Powers took it over and Ed Powers did Dirty Debutantes one right. through 599, or well, maybe they st- might still be going, I don't really know,
0: right? Which is um, if some people know, um, a little bit of their porn history, that's um, was the first scene that uh, Jenna Jameson ever did was a dirty W. Yeah, a scene. lot of girls
1: did their first scene because yeah. he had like an in with Jim South, and you yeah. would get the you know, who Jim South is, of course, I do. So, oh, good,
0: I uh. Are you going to his birthday like next? Oh my God, no! Yeah, I haven't he's heard. A, he's a birthday party coming up. Oh man, my mom and what I. What is it like seventy
1: five or something? No, it like was like eighty
0: something. Eighty something. Yeah. Wow. I, I know. I haven't go. seen him in forever. Yeah, we're going. My mom and I. Make- like weekend after next, I think. So I wanted to have him on the show, but he's you know he's like he's he's significantly older. But yeah. I mean, if anybody's got stories, man, it's Jim out. For those of you who don't know, Jim South was the agent, the yes. only one in town. For a long
1: time, the only one, really. The only one. Well, he, Reb was a competitor of his. Yeah, who but, I work with, but right. not
0: Not. Yeah, there. and and now, I mean, the industry's flooded with different agencies, but back in the day, it was there was only one place to go and that was Jim South. Yes. Yeah, it's crazy world modeling yep <laughs> and he had those books of polaroids that you would go in there and you'd look through them all. yeah yeah oh all those
1: polaroids. Yeah, yeah yeah i had my picture in there once
0: <laughs> you know really we're, i wonder what he did with all those polaroids i feel like they would be worth so much money now
1: well the old ginger lynn uh polaroids and uh all the other stars of the time yeah uh, christy canyon people like that yeah uh started around
0: that time yeah you know my mom's actually got a whole um side business now where she's selling original chromes from old shoots and people are like collectors are paying a lot of money for it oh my god That's we insane.
1: trashed all our chromes No, nope. we threw we them away no man that was you can it. make yeah, money you can selling chromes yeah. we had
0: all boxes of it's so boxes. weird warehouse full of them this is like four years ago. yeah we it's so weird more. because it's come uh full circle so now the film itself is valuable because they're originals and wow. they're nowhere else. And it's crazy. My, my parents have, totally have a new business selling their film.
1: I have the original film film, 35 millimeter film of Fashionistas in, a, in, our, in our server room because <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. And, and I, we were going to throw it out and we didn't. Do not throw it out. Do not throw it Do out. Do
0: not throw it out. There's a whole okay. market now for, for original film. Wow, so I'll talk to you about it afterwards. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I definitely want to get to fashionistas because that was okay. like a really big thing, big production of yours. But okay, so you you were doing the, the you were directing these movies, you were working for other people. How did you? How did Evil Angel come about?
1: Well, Evil Angel was the name I used. To, I published a little porno newspaper in '82. This mm-hmm. was a year before I did my first magazine, and I picked the name Evil Angel because. Mm-hmm. I was Evil John Mm -hmm. in male strip shows. And I liked the combination of Evil and Angel. Right. So I put that together in in 82, 83. um, uh, David House was shooting, and I produced a movie with him, sold it, became partners with Bruce 7. We did like five or six movies, went out on my own, sold, did another 20. Every six weeks, I do a movie or Mm -hmm. two movies. I don't know. And Mm -hmm. I edited myself. I learned how to edit. I bought my own equipment. Throughout the 80s, I sold, made a few bucks, Um The 80s were up and down time, but mostly much easier to make money than today.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, But I had some technical skills. I learned how to become a decent cameraman. Right. I learned there was no autofocus on cameras. So you had to focus yourself, Mm -hmm. which I've added a dad's retina, and I can't see well enough right now to do that. So thank God for (laughs) autofocus. But um, that was through the 80s. I did my 30 or 30 some movies and stuff like that. And then BCA didn't want to buy those two movies. I shot in 88. I kept those. I knew Ed DeRue because we had, me and Bruce had done some stuff for him. He helped me get started. Linda Corso, his wife, was uh, my salesman. That was, our first release was January of 89. Wow. And, uh, that was Dancefire. And I did eight movies, um, that year. Which continually started to sell a little bit more and a little bit more mm-hmm. until the summer. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, some of them were more complicated features. All of them were stories, you know, oh, you yeah, got close ups here and storytelling, you know, and well, it was really intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. I did my own editing. I really liked it. Mm-hmm. In the summer of 89, uh, I said, well, I got this other idea I want to try. This lower budget. Mm-hmm. It's um first-person POV. I'm in the movie as the cameraman, mm-hmm. which was kind of a, a a variation on an idea someone else had suggested where people were looking right into the camera and you mm-hmm. recognize the camera. So I wanted yes. to do that, but I was a better cameraman and, and I wanted to do handheld and stuff. And I combined it with another fetish idea, which was a butt fetish idea. Right. I thought butts were undervalued. To this day, I think maybe they're undervalued. I don't know. People were into big tits and not in ass so much because... I don't
0: know. I feel like butts have had like... Oh, I've, they've had I've, a, oh, yeah, a they're probably, great
1: run for the last 20 years plus.
0: And, like I feel like people are really into butts now. I mean, but it's becoming bigger.
1: 1989, not.
0: No, or you're People right.
1: wouldn't admit it, except guys would look, you know, construction workers would say, oh, that girl looks, looks like two puppies fighting under a blanket. Yeah. You know, with the cheeks bouncing back yeah. and forth. Anyway, I yeah. I so I, and I knew that from personal experience, what I liked and what other people like to look at. So I said, well, let me combine these two ideas. I'll do first-person POV, and I'll do a butt fetish movie. And my girlfriend at the time, because Batman was out the summer of 89 also, said, well, why don't you call yourself Buttman? And I said, oh, man. This was Brandy Alexander. I don't know if you remember. Yes, I do. She she was smart. and She was my girlfriend at the time. And I said, I don't know if I want to call myself that in, in the movie or call it that and whatever. And I said, okay, we'll call it The Adventures of Buttman. And it became a big hit.
0: Became a big hit, and yeah. a lot of people credit that with um, being some of the first Gonzo scenes, and kind of introducing the whole premise of Gonzo. Well, where the, you recognize yes, the camera. The camera.
1: There's, there's. I could talk forever about Gonzo, but there, I'm credited with starting Gonzo because right. Bobby Hollander though did an interview thing where girls would look right into the camera in right. some of the scenes, and that one might have been '87. Mm-hmm. Something like that. There was a guy I ran into who used to shoot film of girls giving himself blowjobs and it played in theaters and I mm-hmm. actually saw a couple of them. Okay. So it's not like girls looking into the camera was brand new, but it mm-hmm. was hardly exploited at all. Right. I had seen somebody taking stills where on the cover they had this guy with this big dick and the girl's got a dick in her mouth and she's looking right into the camera. Right. And you'd never seen that before. And it just stood out like crazy in this bookstore. And I said, mm-hmm. that's what I want to shoot. Right. And that's what the Adventures of Man became. Being sexy right into the camera. With the addition of what Hunter Thompson did in interviews and books was he interjected himself into the interview, like his evaluation of the interview, of the interview subject and stuff like that. And AVN came up with the word gonzo to apply to what I was shooting, Mm -hmm. which was…
0: Which they borrowed from the Hunter S. Thompson journalistic…
1: Gonzo so, writing was right. what that was called gotcha. so they called it Gonzo filmmaking. Right. And because I'm looking with the camera, oh that's pretty long. Let me look at that. Oh, so okay. I'm right. moving the camera up and down and, and examining the girl's body and evaluating it or walking down the street and, and I, I, my premise was to be as believable as possible and as real as possible. Mm-hmm. That was my goal in all my Buttman scenes with the addition of storytelling and weird Gonzo stuff. Weird vignette stuff would be called vignette today not at all like what ed powers did who did 10 months later ed powers did bus stop tales Mm -hmm. which had a recognition of the camera and a guy picking a girl up at a bus stop and the girls looking right into the camera Mm -hmm. not really done the way i was doing it right but pretty much contemporary to me also it was in the air to have imperfect camera work there were these commercials on TV in the summer of uh, '89. It was '88, '89. God, I'm getting old. I can't remember the years. Summer of '89, where like the camera would zoom in and would shake a little bit and would move. Oh, there's the subject and stuff. The demand of being like perfect camera work and right. commercials on TV wasn't. Was changing. People understood that it was a camera and that it, it, it moved to the right subject. And if you had an intelligent cameraman, you could look like you were being awkward, but then it would go into the what you really wanted to see. Right. And that was done for effect. So that was in the air at the time. Right. Geraldo Rivera was following cops around with a cameraman, mm. which was reality kind of gonzo news uh, reporting. Right. And stuff. That was being done in 88, too. So. It was in the air. What right. I did, but I was the first person to exploit this idea. Yeah, I'm going to take credit for it.
0: We're going to give you credit <laughs> for it. It's okay. You can take the credit. Take it. Okay. So, so then you moved on and you did. You created Fashionistas, which was also a Las Vegas show as well as a very yeah. popular movie, and that was something entirely different. What came first, the movie? Oh, the show? movie. Okay, that's what but I thought. But my
1: dream had been, in fact, I got into porn explicitly with the idea that I wanted to do a dance show, that I wanted to finance myself, and I'm lying on the beach in like the the spring of, uh, or towards the summer of, of 83, and I'm mm. thinking, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I've been a male stripper for a few years. I just turned 30 years old. I need to do something. I was publishing this little porno newspaper, but I wasn't making much money on that at all, and I decided... Okay, I'm gonna produce a porn video that this guy David House had suggested doing. Mm-hmm. And my goal is to make enough money to do a dance show, to do some serious art. Not just trashy porn, but serious <laughs> art. And that's what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, so, what, what was I trying to say? The, um, the, the purpose of, of, of my career was a, this dream to, to do this dance show, which mm-hmm. was always in my mind. So in between the summer of 83 and the summer of 2003, I made more and more money. And then I did this movie, which I shot in 2002, which was Fashionista, shot a 35 millimeter film. I didn't even do the budget. I had always done a budget. Okay, I'm gonna spend this much money on the movie, probably, yeah, can I get it back, whatever. The, mm-hmm. I was so successful doing Batman and Evil Angel was doing pretty good. We're talking the early 2000s here. Right. That I didn't have to worry so much. I knew I wanted to do something really good, so mm-hmm. I wound up spending like $500,000 on Fashionistas and thinking wow. I'll never make my money oh. back. In the BTS, you can hear me saying, yeah, I'll buy that, that, um, Aston Martin, if I make money on this movie, which I thought was a crazy idea that yeah. I would make money on this movie. As it turned out, I tripled my money or something like that. I mean, we sold 100,000 pieces of that at wow. double price Definitely. because it was two discs and we just said, it's double price. And people wanted it because it was popular, because it was well done and it had Rocco zofredi as a star and it had a, a, a Belladonna as the star. I mean, the casting was... Really fortuitous, in addition to Taylor St. Clair, who was really, really good Mm -hmm. as the foil in the the three-way love kind of thing that Mm -hmm. we did. She was amazing. And uh, I couldn't have done that movie and had it be as good without her. Right. With any one of those three people. And then uh, it just worked, and I had a cinematographer who uh, was a Buttman fan who had sent me a fan letter in, like, 92, and we did face dance together, and he had this different way to light. He used Kino Flows nobody was using in 1992. Everybody so, was using standard lights.
0: That's so funny because so everyone uses Kino Flows. Everybody
1: uses Kino, yeah. Kino Flows. Now, what, it's kind of moved on to LED lights and stuff like right. that, but they're similar. Yes. Um, so, anyway, that was the beginning of that, and so he came to – To me, or I was still in touch with him through the 90s, although we didn't work together after 92 until 2002. And I said, I want to do this film. I need a good uh, cinematographer. He looked at my script. He said, well, you know, what is the relationship between these girls? It's not defined enough. So we, I, I wrote more. And it was more demanding. And that was a huge growing experience for me, storytelling-wise, mm-hmm. and stuff, because the script became really good. The dynamic between Belladonna and Taylor St. worked out really well. And Rocco was great. And, uh, it became a, and it was designed as an introduction to rougher sex, too. Mm. To the idea of fetish sex, mm-hmm. which implied role-playing and mm-hmm. power exchange and things like that. Right. It was just an introduction. I mean, the whole idea of the Fashionista show is that there's this mainstream fashion designer, kind of like Versace or somebody like that, who wants to branch out into doing fetish clothing. So he's auditioning, looking at DVDs of it. But you don't know that that's what's happening at the beginning. Mm. You just see this weird thing with this, with, uh, girls in a fashion show and there's clothes being ripped off by people who invade the stage and then they've got fashionistas on their latex clothes and then you realize you're watching a video and that it's not really, it's all staged and that it's a promo video and whatever. I love the beginning of movies because you can do so many things at the beginning because you haven't set up obligations. You can fool the, you can you can develop surprises right at the beginning of a movie in ways that you can't do later on when right, you've right, established right. characters.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: That worked out well, all sorts of things. So, I made all this money on fashionistas, and uh, I thought, well, what am I going to do next? Maybe I'll do a big movie, and I thought, well, I really like some of the music and fashionistas that I owned and whatever, and maybe I want to do a dance thing with it somehow. And I went to Las Vegas, and I had friends who lived in Las Vegas who I'd been male strippers with and who I, I don't know, some other acquaintances that I knew, and I went to all these cheap Titty shows, you know, like Fantasy Girls, which is still playing. Yeah, it at is. At the Luxor, you it know, should. that was playing at the time. I looked at that, and, and I looked at these other things. There were half a dozen of them. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I can do that a lot better, and I'll put a story in it and stuff like that, and it'll be sexy and more interesting. And that's what I did.
0: And where did it play?
1: It played at a – well – it was a long development thing, but it wound up going into what was going to be a what was a new nightclub at a place called Crave. Mm-hmm. It had been called the Blue Note, which was a jazz club. It went out of business. It was on the edge of the Aladdin Hotel, which turned into Planet Hollywood, mm-hmm. and uh, they were remodeling it. I had money to burn so I invested in the in the whole nightclub restaurant idea. Oh wow. I lost a fortune. But <laughs> I I got to build though the stage. There was a stage there. There had mm-hmm. been a play there when it was a club. Mm-hmm. Um and the stage wasn't very good. I built it. We put these big gold hands, you know, and platforms on top. I hired three or four aerialists. I always had in the show were aerialists like performing on silks was a relatively new thing mm-hmm. uh, at the time. And we did a two-girl thing on silks, a sexy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That was integrated into all these story numbers. I rewrote the fashionista story to be more soft course, a little bit fetishy, mm-hmm. but I rewrote the organization of it, um, and uh, but maintained the whole love conflict thing um, throughout the whole thing. Really, just the center was was redone a bit, you know, but the basic structure of the Movie Fashionistas' work got translated into a stage show, and I spent millions on it, and it was my dream always to do a dance show, and mm-hmm. I did it, and it got well-reviewed, and not that many people came because, <laughs> I don't know, I mean, we you know we made deals with ticket sellers and stuff, and we couldn't get into the front box office at Planet Hollywood or Aladdin because there was this David Sachs guy who had this theater in the back. He already had that locked up with his shows and stuff. And right. So marketing was a little bit tough. So many marketing meetings for yeah. years. I mean, the show played for for three years and six months or eight months or something like that. And I uh, lost money. Every Are you
0: glad you did it single,
1: uh, It was the best thing I ever did in my life. It was really an expanding thing in terms of my abilities to solve problems mm-hmm. and to be creative as an artist and also mm-hmm. to do dance. because. I had been studying dance while this all was going on, while I was becoming a male stripper and stuff. I was taking ballet class. When I was 20 years old, I started taking modern at, at, um, at first at a school in, in Illinois. And then when I went to UCLA, I took all the modern dance classes you could take for non-majors. Then I started taking ballet and jazz. And I worked as a professional dancer on tour once. In like 77 to 78, I wasn't very good, but I was okay. <laughs> there were girls in dance, and there were no girls. I, I hate to say it, but, you know, when you're a young man, 20, 25 years old, you want to position yourself where you can find a woman, yeah. you know? I mean, that's like a big motivating thing. And right. girl dance dancers were really sexy to me, so it was very attractive. But that was kind of the beginning. Very early on, even at UCLA, I realized, I really like the art of movement and mm-hmm. bodies and stuff. And I think my understanding of bodies and movement has been of enormous help to me as a pornographer and a, yeah. and a photographer. Because yeah. I can look at a person and a girl and interact and, and find good shot, sexy shots
0: yeah.
1: easier. Because I have a body of knowledge and an understanding of the body that... Of, of, of the female body that right. other people don't have.
0: I find that girls who have a background in dance, what whatever kind of dance it be, whether it be ballet, jazz, or exotic dancing, tend to be better performers and definitely better models.
1: Well, a really good exotic dancer who's really sexy, who mm-hmm. knows how to work her body, yeah. is is really generalizes to mainstream dance also. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are girls that study ballet and guys that study ballet and they're very stiff because yep. ballet can be a really good exercise, and, but it's not emotional in the same way right and then there are some dancers that are really good emotionally but they don't have the, the technique right and the best dancers do both like Nureyev or They're it's like emotion and dance and they can communicate and it, you can feel the movement through their body and, it, and it's one with the music
0: yeah and porn and performing and sex is, is like a dance itself
1: yeah oh yeah oh it's and it's like shooting a it's a live performance too yeah. um it's very much like stripping and improvising Right. In a way. Yeah. So. uh,
0: Okay, great. uh, We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back. We We have a lot more to talk about. Okay. This episode of Holly Randall Unfiltered is brought to you by Native Deodorant. If you're like me, you've thought about not only the things you put in your body, but the things you put on your body. And you've wondered how healthy they actually are for you. There's so much new information coming out about all of these chemicals in our day-to-day products that could be harmful down the road. And for me, the one that has concerned me the most is deodorant or more specifically antiperspirant antiperspirant uses aluminum in its makeup, which has some people concerned about that chemicals effect on one's body, which is why I decided to switch to an all natural deodorant native. It works, smells great, and obviously is made without aluminum. I use the coconut and vanilla scent, and I absolutely love it. And you all know I have a pretty physical job. I'm on my feet for 10 to 15 hours a day. And so if it works for me, it'll work for you. But don't just take my word for it. They have over 8,000 five-star reviews and have been featured on the Today Show, Women's Health, L, and Good Morning America, to name a few. So for 20% off your first purchase, go to nativedeodorant.com and use promo code HOLLY. That's nativedeodorant.com and use promo code HOLLY. Take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. All right, we're back. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about, so first of all, you were diagnosed with HIV back in 90, 97,
1: 97, February, beginning
0: of. And then your wife, um, Trisha DeVoe? Devereaux. Devereaux. Also Karen, I know it's yeah. Karen. She also became HIV positive, but that was through the Mark Wallace situation, yes. right? And that was not how you contracted it, correct?
1: no. So, was,
0: can you explain, because a lot of people don't know about the Mark Wallace controversy, yeah. which was a big fucking deal.
1: Since 2004. We've there had none. No, there's no incidents that's been documented. or the, There are a few people that have been positive. They've all been trying to get in the business right. or back in the business. Right. And were not able to because they were tested. But nobody tested after working and, and got it.
0: Right. Yeah. There was, um, that's, that's been a lot of, um, confusion when, you know, there's a big headline about like H positive HIV case in the adult industry. And we have a moratorium. A lot of people will take that to mean like, Oh, see, like there are, there's, there's disease riddled and they're giving each other, infecting each other. But that's not true because a lot of these cases have been, well, all those cases since 2004 have been the testing actually working and catching people before they go and they perform with other people and infect anybody else. And there's only
1: three or four cases anyway. Right,
0: exactly, exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about the Mark Wallace situation? Well,
1: I knew Mark. We were both doing still pictures at the same time in 82 and 83. He was a friend of mine. He was in several of my movies in the 80s. And uh, I understand he had a heroin habit Mm -hmm. um, and was shooting up, and perhaps that's how he got it. I don't know. You know, people often will... Search for explanations that are slanderous because right. they make sense, and mm-hmm. maybe that does make sense maybe it 's true i I'm hesitant to say that. I do know that for a fact, he had a heroin habit and uh and he was altering his tests from what i 've heard I right. know none of this stuff firsthand yeah, I do know that he had a scene with my wife. this was um nine months after I was positive, and mm-hmm. she had been working for a long time and And we did sporadic testing in that time frame. It wasn't required Mm -hmm. all the time, but I was getting tested all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, By all the time, I mean every couple of months, which Mm -hmm. nobody was – there were no requirements for a test. uh, Until after my wife got it. Right. Um, And Mark uh, was altering his test. Right. Because uh, there was some confusion and controversy that he played with to justify in his head what he was doing. I don't know that he – he said, "Well, I haven't given it to anybody so far. How can I continue?" And right. it's true; it's really hard to spread. Right. However, um, he apparently did to several people, including my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, no, it's a really sad situation. It's just, yeah. it's interesting psychologically to think about that, right? Uh, um, because what would you do in the situation where you desperately needed money and you? thought maybe you did maybe you didn't I could just blank out my mind and not think it through just what happened with the syphilis outbreak uh, right of which there's only been one that I know of right uh, in in the time that I've been in the porn business so it's uh, I do know the performer seemed to be behaving in that manner through an interview he did
0: right
1: Um, so uh, same with Mark and uh, he went You know some he was friends with some people and he worked and he died a couple of years ago
0: I don't yeah. remember uh,
1: what he died of but treatment is better
0: yeah I there's w- a lot has changed I mean both you well, and Karen your viral load is now so low that it's undetectable right
1: I've been undetectable since three weeks after I found out I got it right. I never had a viral load that was very high right. until I did take a drug vacation once mm-hmm. Um, 2014 mm-hmm. and the virus came back and I went back on the meds so for five years I've been non-detectable again and, the, and it
0: hasn't affected like your health no, or lifestyle and n- any- not
1: one little bit my T cells have always been really high mm-hmm. I've never gotten sick from it or anything like that Right. my wife on the other hand got it at a time a year later when they had realized that well it's not a cure because they thought that taking the meds would be a cure mm-hmm. and they thought well no maybe it's better if you don't start taking the meds right away and that you, you, you make sure you don't blow your your, your bullets against it, so to speak. Your, mm-hmm. your body could maybe, you know, find resistance to some of the meds. So she right. didn't, and I think that hurt her long-term, but she's still doing fine. She started taking the meds before when she got pregnant, and she started taking the meds. She went to non-detectable right away. The doctor who was supervising the situation said, you know, the chances of her passing it on to the child are like 1% or 2%, and possibly that 1% or 2% is only because – the mother didn't take her meds the way she was supposed to. Mm-hmm. They, they figured at least that many people don't take the meds anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we have two children and they're negative and she's been negative uh, all this time. So her T-cells aren't as high as mine. That could be more natural, but she's healthy and fine. Right. So, and then you can't spread it when you're non-transmittable. Although I had, that's another story, I knew that it would be really hard for me to transmit it from the beginning. And mm-hmm. that's what all the doctors always told me. Mm-hmm. And that only made sense. But no one ever did a study until they did a couple of studies in the last three or four years that show right. that, you, in fact, you can't spread it.
0: Right, when right. You're non-detectable. Yeah, there's been a lot of, um, you know, I think, misunderstanding and misinformation around HIV. And there's been um, so many advances now. But there's still a lot of stigma surrounding it. And that kind of um, really was brought to you when Katie Summers sued you in 2009 for when she did a Buttman scene with you? Well,
1: she didn't sue me in 2009. She sued me in 2011 or 12 or something like that. It went to...
0: Was the scene in 2009?
1: The scene was in 2009. Gotcha. She started dating Rob Black Mm -hmm. some year or two after that
2: Mm -hmm.
1: when he realized he had... She had done a scene with me. She said, whoa, he touched you, whatever. You know, maybe you should say that you went through all this emotional stress. So she sued me two years later, just within the window when, well, actually, she said she found out in like 11. And then she, within the year time after that, she filed a lawsuit saying that she had found out two years after we shot the scene. So you have to file a lawsuit within a year or something like that. Right. So that worked out that then she could then sue me because, it, in fact, it was three years or so after we had had any contact with each other. And, mm-hmm. and so be, because she said that she found out and went through all this emotional stress, she was suing me for the emotional stress.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then we did depositions and my lawyer pointed out, well, you were tested 40 times after you did this scene where he touches your leg once. Right, in the scene. If you look at the scene, I yeah. naturally want.
0: So, for in people work. who don't know, the butt man scenes. You act as the cameraman, and you also like touch the girls, so, but in, in, like you don't ever. There's no genitals There's no fingering. And no there's fingering. No, it's always like external yeah. boobs, butt, hand yeah.
1: situation. It's no finger fucking or anything like that. Right. And in fact, she was brand new in the business. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to tell her I had HIV. So the only thing I do is I help to hold her leg open, and mm-hmm. I think I arrange her panties once. Mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. And and because she was brand new, a girl who'd been in the business for a longer time, who knew I had HIV, I have grabbed their butts a little bit and uh, grabbed their tits a little bit.
2: Mm -hmm. And, uh,
1: and all consensually, obviously talked about and whatever and asked. um, But uh, that, so my lawyer pointed out that you had like 40 tests since you did the scene. So there was never a moment where you thought you might have HIV because you knew. First of all, you said you didn't even know he had HIV until two years later, and then you had 40 tests in the meantime. So right. you were tested 40 times in between. So there was never a moment when you could have had any emotional stress because you had all these tests. Right. And then she started crying on the deposition. It was sad, and Rob Black was there. I wasn't actually there. My lawyer told me about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think she was used by Rob,
0: to tell right. me the truth. How did so, that whole thing make you feel? I mean, that must have been...
1: Well, I don't think people are perfect, and I realize that there's going to be conflicts in the world. And carrying myself, I've uh, always been careful to um, be completely honest with people Mm -hmm. and uh, not behave in ways that I had seen many people behave, because I think that if you lie to people and you create false images or anything like that, you're vulnerable to to all sorts of stress and conflict. So I Mm -hmm. try and be myself completely and be completely honest with people all the time. Right. So I have not had i've had very few of those situations and uh, and i knew that there i hadn't caused her any stress i knew yeah. that even if she knew i had hiv i hadn't done anything that was dangerous or anything like that so I, I was never worried that anything real would happen right so it wasn't a big deal i mean rob black said a lot of bad things about me i thought it was kind of interesting <laughs> he, he was a he was a character
0: yeah, yeah, he certainly but, you was. You know, he
1: came along at an interesting time in the late nineties and, mm-hmm. and and what he said and what he got indicted for and went to jail. And he was mad at me. He was mad at me because he went to jail for a year and I didn't.
0: It was for obscenity, right? For
1: obscenity. Right. But he did a PBS documentary before he was indicted where he said, Come and get me, basically. I'm gonna shoot a girl being raped and killed. Which is what he did. And that's what he got indicted and convicted over. Wow. And you know, that's pretty extreme. Yeah. It's art. So I'm and, and I believe in free speech and I believe in free art and I think that freedom always leads to good results. Mm-hmm. And that and that, you know, and people would see that and I think that criminals who see criminal behavior in mainstream movies show criminal behavior all the time. Right. But you know, in order to make the criminal behavior have power, you have to show the victim. Right. And then the victim becomes real to me because you've seen it in art. And when and most of the time when a criminal is a rapist or or, or a killer or something like that. The person that they that they abuse is not a real person in their head. And mm-hmm. art makes has to make that victim a real person in their head in order for the art to work.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then when the criminal sees that, there's been studies about this, but they see that they're really hurting somebody. So if they have some empathy in them, they realize that they've committed a crime. Now some people don't have empathy. Some people can look at other people getting fucked over, some small percentage, and they don't have the empathy that other human beings have. Mm-hmm. And uh, in which case, they might not care (laughs) about what they do.
0: So do you think, because I've never seen the scene that that Rob got um, convicted for. It wasn't
1: a scene. It was a movie.
0: It was a movie. Did you, was the victim portrayed in a way that you felt empathy for her?
1: Man, I didn't watch the whole movie. I only saw parts of it. Okay. It was like some boot camp thing where the girls were treated kind of rough. Right. This idea of treating people rough and the dynamic of human sexuality is such that women like powerful men right so there is some people that have women have rape fantasies women have fantasies about powerful men being strong with them mm-hmm. and they know explicitly i mean dana's better to talk about this than i am right it's, you know i don't have any credibility talking right. about this i'm a guy right? right i'm not supposed to talk about it
0: no you're not but, you're not incorrect at all
1: uh, but those things exist in the world. Right. They're very strong. Mm-hmm. Women are t- attracted to that kind of porn.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and they know it's fiction. Mm-hmm. But it, it works with the psychology to be attracted to a powerful man. Mm-hmm. So it can work sexually for them. Mm-hmm. How it works sexually, why it works sexually, I'm not sure. I'm just talking about the facts. Right. About what exists in the world.
0: How do you feel about the suggestion that people make that you're encouraging men to actually engage in rape with those videos that is an
1: interesting question i think in the end it has to be determined empirically Mm -hmm. and uh what i have heard from every study i think i don't know every study i'm not like a statistician or something like that but the most convincing study about porn uh was one that was done in the mid-2000s when the internet was being adopted Mm -hmm. and now Crimes, violent crimes have been going down since the 90s, unexpectedly, by the way, because in the 90s they did the crime bill and also everybody thought it was going to be horrible. My theory, stupidly, perhaps, is that because baby boomers got older right. and they were the bulk of the population, there was less young people to commit crimes. Right. But that that's might that's be that's wrong, right. whatever. It's an, These are empirical questions. So the empirical question was, does porn create violence mm-hmm. in society? Mm-hmm. And that's a valid question to ask, I think. Um And what was found in this study was that you could examine states where the percentage of people that started using the Internet and looking at porn, it didn't happen in every state at the same time. Some states adopted, like in the Eastern Seaboard or whatever. These states started adopting um, the Internet faster. People started looking at the Internet faster. And crime was dropping all across the country. But Mm -hmm. crime dropped faster in those states where people started looking at porn on the internet sooner
0: what kind of crime are we talking about are we talking- violent
1: crime property crime okay. rapes sexual 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 abuse. crime yeah. okay so that's an empirical question there might be other studies that should be done this is an empirical question and violent video games it's an empirical question do right. they encourage violence because my son is looking at first person shooter games mm-hmm. and whatever and He tends to not like them that much, but, you know, he does sometimes. And he talks about it. And I was a kid, and we had toy guns and stuff. My son's got Nerf guns, Mm -hmm. and he plays with them. Does this encourage violence, guns like that? I'm not sure. It is an empirical question. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe more studies will come out. I don't think they're going to be in contradiction to the past studies that have been done. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I think that, that if you're going to assert that, violent video games, or porn causes sexual abuse, then you have to show that it causes sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. You can't just assert it. Right. And they're wrong.
0: Right. The I studies. mean, so I I know that, I mean, the stuff kind of stuff that I generally shoot tends to not be super hardcore. But I do know that, um, you know, Evil Angel does some pretty, you guys so shoot this some, is this
1: is, another, yeah, sure.
0: You what guys do some pretty intense stuff, but I feel... And, and correct me if I'm wrong. Do you go through two strides to make sure that the girl shows some kind of consent? Cause I know, like, for example, when I shoot for Mind Geek all the time, if there's a scene where there's some kind of, I don't know, power dynamic, there always absolutely has to be some kind of scene, some kind of sentence, something in there that shows that the girl is consenting to whatever is happening for, like, a safety issue, just so, to make sure that they... Do you guys institute the same thing? Okay,
1: so first off, up until just a couple of years ago, everything that we sold other than what I produced mm-hmm. was not owned by me. It was shot by independent producers. Correct. But I always talked to the new directors mm-hmm. that there can be no casting couch mm-hmm. at Evil Angel. Mm-hmm. There's no exchange, quid pro quo, you know, I'll mm-hmm. put you in a movie, you know, if you fuck me, whatever, that I don't want to... Have you behaved that way? I never want to hear about a scandal where you've abused a girl, mm-hmm. where you've said something to a girl and then pushed the limits or something like that mm-hmm. and then had the girl be unhappy. If something like that happens, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And its I don't know that it's ever happened at Evil Angel. There were some allegations against Brian Gosling, and then they were withdrawn and stuff like that. And he's really articulate. About mm-hmm. this, and he talks to the girls, and sometimes he doesn't shoot scenes because if he doesn't feel like the girl is with the program. Mm-hmm. But this crazy idea that Evil Angel shoots all this strong stuff is not coming from people who actually watch Evil Angel porn. Mm-hmm. It's coming from most other people who have this idea because it is true. I've shot some really strong scenes with Rocco and Nacho, especially in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff we shoot today is not got really strong stuff. And besides, what is it you even mean by strong stuff? Getting turned on by a slap on the face or something mm-hmm. like that—is that what you mean?
0: Yeah, I'm talking like that? more. Is like it the
1: attitude? Scenes? It's the attitude of a power mm-hmm. dynamic or something like that, mm-hmm. which is fantasy, which is just like you know watching, looking at a video game or something like that, where there's violence or something like that. We actually don't have violence. Mm-hmm. There, there—you can't have anybody tied up. We have rules in place where if it looks like a girl is uncomfortable and not happy it's flagged by mm-hmm. our qc department we have probably the most extensive qc department in the business i don't know of anybody who spends as many puts as many resources into qc that we have so it's either flagged or if somebody's being choked if it's for a pleasant sexual reason it's definitely okay mm-hmm. but if the girl looks unhappy it's flagged mm-hmm. and it's looked at and it's not it's we just don't put those scenes out um, I did have a scene where a girl was choked, where she, they were, she said, I want to be choked, and the guy wanted to choke her, and they did it to the point where, well, she doesn't pass out or anything like that, but, I mean, it was stronger than I had ever shot before. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was a little concerned, and mm-hmm. I talked to them about it, but they said they really wanted to do it. So we put it in there. It's like, its I don't want to say it's normal, but it's a little stronger than average. Mm-hmm. Is it acceptable and sexual? I think it's a discovery as part of the vocabulary of sexual turn on mm-hmm. that we found that, that 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 choking somebody a little bit works sexually for people. Mm-hmm. I've had girls grab my hand and put my hand on their nose. Oh, I, I have no girls idea. To that. It's it's a very common thing. Right. And uh, th- th- there's these whole misconceptions about about people who do this and whatever. There are no new girls that come onto an Evil Angel set and that are surprised by how strong the scene is. Because we don't hire new girls and then expect them to do a strong scene. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't happen.
2: Mm -hmm. I mean,
1: give me some examples of that happening. There aren't any. Every time a scene is stronger, and these don't happen hardly at all anymore, not in the last 15 years even. When Rocco was in his prime and I shot the first Fashionistas and the second Fashionistas in 2006, some of those were really strong scenes, but they were all talked about in detail. This is what I want to have happen. Melissa Loren wanted to have a sex scene with Nacho Vidal when he was at his prime. And and we knew that there was going to be some slapping in it, and there was going to be some rougher stuff, and it was going to be power play. That was the whole idea of the scene. I talked, that was the first thing I talked to her. I said, I saw you slap this guy. Are you into that kind of stuff? And we talked at length about this character and what this person would do. I don't shoot just normal stuff i shoot like one or two movies a year in the last five years it's been like one and a half movies a year Mm -hmm. and so when i shoot it's always with people that have worked before that's Mm -hmm. me personally Mm -hmm. when other people shoot i can't say how they deal with brand new girls except there aren't rough things happening in those scenes
0: right okay um well i guess this could lead us to the cam girls question yes now, I, I watched some of the scenes. So I had Ginger um, Banks on a couple of weeks yes. ago. And those girls are not new to porn in the sense that they're both cam girls, and they're both successful cam girls, her and Jenny Blige. But they are new to pro porn, and they did their first pro porn scenes with you guys. So would you consider those girls new? Because you said earlier yes, yes absolutely. you would. Okay, Yes, Um so, the two scenes in question that, that were brought up were the threesome with Manuel, Jenny, and Ginger, which Ginger said that she enjoyed. She thought it was one of the best scenes that she'd ever done. Um, I think after the fact, Jenny felt that it was harder or stronger, I guess as you say, than she expected. And she was told that she was going to do a vanilla scene. I, I guess she didn't... Think that that was a vanilla scene? So, how do you let's feel about look that? Look at this
1: context. Okay, I suspect that the scene was—I mean, Manuel Ferrara does a really good scene, mm-hmm. and it's really sexual, mm-hmm. and that probably there was some stuff in there
2: mm-hmm.
1: that that she was not that comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Looking at the scene, she looks comfortable with it all. Yeah. She looks like she's really into it. Yes, I mean, it's kind of hard. To, like, say it was a bad scene or, or that she was uncomfortable when she doesn't look uncomfortable. I,
0: I watched when it myself and I agree with you.
1: Ginger Banks said, I never got any sense of that. However, right after the scene, I'm told later that she did express that this was a little stronger than what I had anticipated mm-hmm. and wanted to do. But she was told before the scene, during the scene, anything happens that you don't like, please stop. Mm-hmm. So, what are we supposed to do at that point right. when she doesn't appear to be uncomfortable? She's been told, please stop the scene if something is happening that you don't like, and yet she doesn't do that. Right. Isn't it insulting and condescending to a woman to say that you don't have control of your faculties when it's obvious that you do to our perception? Right. And then we say, well, you don't actually know yourself. We know better, or, 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 or we think you're hiding Mm-hmm. When w- doesn't that disrespect the woman mm-hmm. to say that we know better for your safety than than you personally do?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I don't know what to say.
0: Yeah, no, I, I understand. I understand what you mean, and I've found myself in situations as well where I think I can read. A girl and how she feels, but I'm not entirely sure. And, you know, I do tell them before the scene always, I'm like, you can always do, you know, stop the scene if you're uncomfortable, anything like that. And I think that sometimes, I wonder if sometimes girls just don't really know what they're getting into. Maybe they think that they can handle a certain thing and they can't, and then they don't feel like they can speak up in that moment. And I also wonder too, if this whole idea of winning like AVN or XBiz performer of the year or something like that, usually the girls who win those, those awards are girls who do really hardcore intense scenes. Do you think that sometimes people look at someone like, like Angela White or Katrina Jay girls who really enjoy these, these rough scenes and who really flourish in those kinds of scenarios and feel like I want to get those accolades. I want to be famous like that girl I've got to do those kinds of scenes, even though maybe I'm not actually comfortable with it, but I feel like that's what I need to do to get there. And they don't, like, recognize that until after the fact.
1: I'm not sure that that is the correct interpretation, but maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly in any kind of personal relationship that you have with someone, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in sex or not sex, and all the time in not sex, we don't always express our discomfort in a situation because right. we want to go along. We don't want to cause problems or something like that. Right. If not going along means that we're going to be physically hurt, then that's a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. You certainly never want that to happen. Mm-hmm. And in fact, no one has been physically hurt in an evil angel scene that I'm aware of. It's, it happens sometimes that mm-hmm. people go further than what they think they can handle, and they're a little bit hurt for a while. Not a lot hurt that I know. I hate even drawing a line at a little hurt or a lot hurt. You know, what yeah. the fuck? You don't want somebody to be hurt. Right. But sometimes people will go along in order to to not, not make trouble. Right. So the whole idea of porn is that you're capable as a performer of deciding for yourself what you're going to do mm-hmm. and that you're capable of speaking up because no one's tied up. And having sex while tied up and gagged or something like that, because mm-hmm. we don't sell that kind of stuff at Evil Angel. Right. Um, and I'm not going to say people who do that are really bad people, like at Kink or whatever, they've done that. I mean, there's lots of consent problems dealt with in advance. Right. Or people are knowledgeable of that. Yeah. But I think it's important to realize that sex is physical act and you can't possibly talk about every little thing oh his hand's going to go here and then his hand's going to go there and then we're going to go there and then maybe if it's a little too hard you got to stop it or maybe you won't want to stop it and stuff like that i how are we supposed to know if you don't tell us are you in full control of your capacities. In other words, are you not drunk off your ass or something mm-hmm. like that when you're doing the scene? Mm-hmm. And that would be improper to shoot that scene. And right. I have talked to people about not shooting girls that are high on drugs and stuff like that because then they don't have the capacity
2: mm-hmm.
1: to, to, to show consent. Mm-hmm. But it's all based on consent. And my life, not just in porn, but my life since high school when I realized that I needed to like not be a petty thief you know I was a little bit of a a shoplifter or whatever my neighbors they were seminary students to become priests they said it was okay to steal stuff I went along with it and then I realized (laughs) I feel guilty about this I don't want to do this so I don't know I broke up with my first girlfriend and I decided I just don't want to feel guilty about anything right so it's just not comfortable it's not worth it so that is what I've lived by
2: Mm -hmm.
1: now the revelation that some people Interact in ways that are not completely honest. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot about that. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly learned a lot about the fact that the male female dynamic is not the same as the male male dynamic. Right. And I've certainly been criticized for interrupting. Have I interrupted you too much here? I might have.
2: I don't know. I'm really sorry. (laughs) I can't help myself.
1: I interrupt men too sometimes. It's horrible. But it's, worse if if it comes from the fact that you don't respect the other person Mm -hmm. like a female whatever Mm -hmm. so the 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 real question is are you sensitive to the person and are you giving them the ability to say no when they want to say no Mm -hmm. and i have always striven to do that and i have seen bad producers who talk behind the performers back and say well i really kind of want to do this maybe we can just push it a little bit harder or something like that and get that even though they don't really want to do it i want to get it out of out of them anyway
2: mm-hmm.
1: i have explicitly not wanted to do that and right. this didn't start this year or last year this started when i first started shooting movies mm-hmm. this is part of my personality i i I'm, i find it unnecessary to put all this out in writing but i can see how some people feel that it is necessary because it is true that when you hire a director you don't have intimate knowledge of how their brain works all the time right you know and it's better if it's written down right so i understand that but i do feel like i've talked with my directors one of the things i say to my directors all the time especially when we were doing well and we were making a lot of money it's like you got to understand you're negotiating the price with the girl and what she's going to do all the time. And she might be relatively new in the business. only done it two or three times. Maybe it's the first time she's done it. Mm-hmm. You've done it a hundred times, a thousand mm-hmm. times. You're better at it right. than they are. Right. So pay them a little extra. Go out of your way to make sure that they're comfortable. And I've been saying that all my career.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you thought about instituting something like, cause I've talked to some other girls about consent, cause I feel like that's, it's a big issue now, you know, in the adult industry, especially with the way that like social media has given girls a platform to really voice their opinions, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. And, you know, obviously with the Me Too movement coming around and women feeling more empowered to speak their minds and talk about if they're in an uncomfortable sexual situation. There's been discussion about actually literally creating like a written checklist where you're like, okay, I don't want to be slapped, but I don't mind being spanked. I don't want to be spit on, but I don't mind a finger in my butthole. Have you thought about bringing something like that onto set? Really have an incredibly clear...
1: Well, how many of those items are? Because we do talk about those things all the time. There's an understanding. We never go into a scene saying, well, just do whatever you want. Unless the girl says... Just do whatever you want. So did you have I'll that, tell you if I want to stop. Did and you
0: have that, that discussion? before? Or do you know? I know you weren't there that day, but the, the before the threesome started, did they have that discussion of do's and don'ts?
1: I don't know what happened in terms of do's and don'ts. I okay. do know that they talked about mm-hmm. them being comfortable with the scene. That's, okay. But I know that secondhand because right. I wasn't there. Right. So I don't, I don't know exactly how the words were exchanged. Okay. I do know that I never became aware of any of these problems, and that none of it was mentioned on social media or anything until the box cover came out for the movie,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Jenny wasn't on the cover, and then all this problem happened months later mm. than this when, when the scene was happened, right. and the revelation that there was a conversation between Ginger and the and Chris, who was the producer director of the movie, mm-hmm. and who said no. That she said, expressed that she didn't want to be touched.
0: Right. Okay. So now we're moving on to talking about conver- the scene that you yeah, directed. The only, the, man, yeah, the only, girl only girl.
1: conversation okay. I had was, I want them to look at this scene I had just won an award for with Kissa and, um, where I touched their tits a little bit and grab their ass. Right. It, you know, and I said, well, I want them to know that that's what's going to happen. We're going to shoot a scene like that. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to happen in the scene. And they acknowledged that they had watched the scene and they were okay with that. Mm-hmm. That's all I knew.
0: Okay. Now, so, because what Ginger explicitly happened? said that Chris, Correct. that she asked Correct. Chris if you were going to touch her, and Chris told her no.
1: And Chris had told me that that conversation didn't happen.
0: So, how do you so think that that incredible one
1: person or another that
0: miscommunication happened? It
1: might have simply been a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Certainly, anything that happened in the scene, I thought the girls were in full control of their facilities while i was shooting because nobody was drunk nobody was stoned or right. anything like that and everything every every old touching i took grab her ass twice and i grabbed her tits once yeah i mean that's what happened there was no touching off camera or anything like that right it's all there on video so you can see to the extent of it which is pretty mild nobody mm-hmm. got hurt there was nothing rough about it. it was just like it was completely my desire to make a better scene right because it was a First time girl, girl scene for these girls, right. and I was trying to, you know, and that a- is accent their your sexiness. thing, and that
0: is the character that you play, exactly. But somehow they were under the impression that they were explicitly told you would not touch them, but you did, and then you were never told that they expressed that desire. Or that Correct. was so. There's like this huge gap of misinformation.
1: Yeah. Do you? uh, But but they did say they had seen the scene that I said we were going to shoot, right? Like this scene, and that was what was going to happen. And they acknowledged that that was okay, right? So that was what I was operating under. I believe that was what Chris was operating under. Mm -hmm. And uh, if that wasn't the case, we should have been told. In any case, if Ginger was under a misunderstanding with that regard. Maybe we should have talked about it more explicitly. Mm-hmm. Certainly what happened was so mild and not physically injurious. It, was it invasive? Perhaps it was, and mm-hmm. perhaps it should have been talked about. Certainly in today's day and age, um, I, I talk about it more. I mean, right. I, I do ask the girls if I can touch. I say, well, is it okay if I do this? Sometimes I do it on camera in the scene, mm-hmm. and, but I expect them to say no. If they don't. But, you know, it's not like this is an intimidating environment when I'm shooting. This is a very casual thing. And I'm trying to bring out their personality and have them be honest. Because my goal is never to do predictable. I'll tell girls, don't just agree with me. Don't say yes to everything. I want you to be real Mm -hmm. and to react in the way that you normally would, which is what I talk to the girls about doing.
0: But you see that it could be possibly intimidating that a girl would say no to you on camera, you know, in that, or, or yeah, I bet, I mean, I could see, you know, I mean, you're John Stagliano, like you, you know, you carry a lot of reputation and and the legacy of being like a very important figure in the adult industry. And so, and I, and I think that a a lot of times, you know, girls, when, they have the camera is on and it's recording. You feel like you should slide into this character that you're supposed to portray. So, if something happens that you're uncomfortable with, I think I would feel like the last thing I would want to say is no, because that just made everything weird. I mean, I would. Well, yeah.
1: I mean, maybe talking about the fact that we can cut out any of that interaction yeah. is not understood. And right. maybe Ginger didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. So. Certainly, with a new girl, it's more understandable Right. That, that somebody who has not shot professional scene before, they might not understand that, well, if you just say, no, stop, we'll cut the whole thing out. Right. Our goal is to make you look good. Right. I did talk to them about how the goal of the scene was to make you look good and be sexy, mm-hmm. but they possibly didn't understand that.
0: So, probably. you were obviously very surprised.
1: Yeah, and none of this happened. None of it came out until months later. Right. Which I think is important to note.
0: Yeah. Has this changed your mind about how you're going to conduct scenes in the future? Like, are you considering being overly communicative, maybe having a checklist like I talked about, or maybe just...
1: We're all overly... Com- overly, I wouldn't say overly. We all communicate more now mm-hmm. because of the context. The context is today. Right. And the context is that men treat women differently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The fact is... To this day, I probably make mistakes. Certainly my wife will be reminding me constantly <laughs> of all the mistakes that I make.
0: Do you ever feel like a little bit of like a fish out of water with society, I guess, in the way that it is now and with the Me Too movement and with social media and with porn performers like having more and more agency. Does it do you ever feel like I don't know, maybe a little bit more nervous?
1: Yeah, we're all more concerned because because women have a greater voice. Yeah. So um, the consequences of a misunderstanding are far greater. And right. that's a good thing. Right, that's right. a very good thing, that the consequences are greater. I think it's very important that people speak up for themselves and feel empowered to do that. Mm-hmm. And society is moved in that direction. So in response to that, talking about potential problems are important, okay. are more important than they were before. Um, you just
0: wish that this had been I, communicated I, to you before you put the DVD out, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, the fact is it was I mean, I don't even remember the timing of when the D V D came out, to tell mm-hmm. you the truth. Or the in relation to any problems. Right. Um the box cover came out and Jenny wasn't on the cover and she complained. Rightly so, I might say.
0: It Who was, was on the cover? Was it? There just was Jennifer?
1: no cover. It was no person was on the cover. It was oh, okay. just crazy. And it didn't sell very well. <laughs> possibly because of that so you know and i can certainly understand if i was ginger i mean jenny uh-huh. who was really beautiful yeah um i would say oh god i i thought i was going to be on the cover and yeah not, i mean it's the only pro
0: porn scene that she ever yeah. shot, and so as I, she said will ever shoot totally
1: sympathetic towards her point of view yeah and i was not running the company actively at the time uh, other people were and i was simply um Filling in as the owner, and I wasn't making that decision. Mm-hmm. I approved it, mm-hmm. but I wasn't involved in the creation of the box cover or anything. I just said, "Is it?" They asked me, "Is it okay to put the uh, the box cover out like this with nobody's picture on the cover? I say, "Yeah, it's an interesting idea. If you think it's the best thing, I'm not going to override you on this." Right. I do. I did override them sometimes, but I didn't choose to override them on that. Right. So.
0: Okay. So I have some questions for, for my Patreon members that, uh, Dana Vespoli actually answered. Um, she was going to come on today, but she wasn't feeling well. So she did send us her answers to some of these questions. And I think they're really well done. So I'm going to read them and if you want to comment on them at all. Um, so Sam Lewis asked, uh, in an industry that's under the social and societal microscope as porn is, along with social media giving performers so much more of a voice and independence than any other time in porn, Why do John and Dana think the realm of do's and don'ts aren't more solidified outside of a few specific sites and directors? So Dana said, I think it's an ongoing process. I know that Erica Lust has a performer bill of rights that is handed out to talent on set. And of course, kink.com has a do's and don'ts checklist. A lot of studios ask the talent to discuss do's and don'ts before the scene and believe it to be sufficient because I suppose it has been enough thus far until it isn't anymore. So I guess this just kind of like asks the question again, would you ever consider like an actual written checklist or do you think that that's too much?
1: I think it's imp- – oh, God, I feel like a politician right now.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> I can understand like, – Yes, how- I've
1: considered a written checklist. Uh-huh. No, I'm not sure. I'm going to answer the question first, and then okay. I'm going to do my segue like a politician okay. to something else. <laughs> I hate it when they don't say yes or no at the beginning of after the question. Um It's always been important to me that people are on the same page, mm-hmm. that what's happening, everybody's consistent with. And and to tell you the truth, I, I – don't think of women as not being able to decide for themselves what they want to do. I think that's sexist in itself. Mm-hmm. And to imply that a woman is not capable of saying yes or no to a thing is condescending to that woman.
2: Mm.
1: Now, it is true, and we all know in interpersonal relationships that sometimes, because of the cost of saying, like, making people uncomfortable or whatever, or maybe the scene should be good and I don't know if I want to do it or not because I'm uncertain I don't like those situations. I've never liked them. I've stopped performers all the time. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, Rocco used to do stronger scenes in front of my camera, and I'd always be saying, you sure, she wants you to spit on her or something like that. I don't know. Let's not do that. You know. Mm-hmm. And then at some point in time, I realized every single time I've stopped it, the girl has said, no, I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. And And Rocco's really sensitive to the girl. So I... Let it go, but I watch the situation much more closely when he's being a little bit stronger with a girl. Mm -hmm. But all this stuff is not outside the norm, and it's not like they're surprises or anything. Mm -hmm. But that's another point. Surprises are what happens all the time in real life in interactions with people. Yeah. So if you're going to enter society and leave the womb of the home, you have to be able to say yes or no to what you're doing and Mm -hmm. what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And it's assumed that you're capable of doing that.
0: Right. Um, And that actually uh, brought up a question that Hannah um, asked, Hannah Vega asked, and she said... um, Here we go. Uh, Many of Evil Angel's featured directors and performers have produced remarkable bodies of work that have challenged and elevated traditional depictions of porn. I want to just add in here that you guys were one of the first companies to start um, mixing trans porn in with, quote unquote, mainstream porn. And that is something that was kind of taboo for a long time, but everyone has adopted now. So that's something that I feel like we should... Make sure that everybody knows because Evil angels has been very progressive in that way.
1: We're progressive. Yes, we're politically correct. <laughs> Actually, we're just horny guys. Oh, you know, that's a turn on. Why can't we do it? Uh, because other people don't do it. I don't know. Because society doesn't like it. But we don't care what other people think in society. So we're just going to do it anyway, which is what happened in 98 when Joey came to me with the idea. He said he wanted to transborn. Mm-hmm. He said, will you sell it? And I said, yeah, why not? I don't know but i had I had been infected by a trans person right and and I think he was a little concerned because of that but that was purely my own doing and irresponsibleness <laughs> that, right. that caused that and I right. really think it wasn't relevant to to this situation right so.
0: right um so, to continue her question, um, some of these content creators have been accused of violating their scene partner's consent. In the world of porn, especially rougher or hardcore porn, these same individuals are elevated and rewarded. Their fellow hardcore performers respect them and choose to continue working with them. To what extent are these instances of non consent just cases of inexperienced performers not understanding their scene partner's style beforehand? Or are certain performers less vocal and just not effective communicators for whatever reason, trauma, or fear in the moment with their scene partner?
1: First of all, the first thing right at the beginning, there's Mm -hmm. the assumption that people's consent has been violated on Evil Angel scenes. Mm -hmm. Give me some examples because I'm not aware of them. Because I can't answer any of the other questions because they are all assuming that that's happened on an Evil Angel set, and I'm not aware of that
0: happening. Well, I think she's probably pointing to the Ginger interview.
1: Okay. okay, because she's. Specific. Do you want me to say something else about that? No, no. I think thing? you. I, I think you've made your point yeah. there.
0: Yeah, it yeah. was a miscommunication. For some reason, there was a huge gap in what she thought was happening and what you thought were happening. So, but I mean, ultimately, what she said is that her consent was violated. So I think that is what she's pointing to. So I guess her question really is: is is that is that case a situation of an inexperienced performer not understanding their scene partner style beforehand? I think that could probably be more pointed to the threesome, Jenny's feeling about the threesome situation, her well, not understanding Manuel's it's, style, it's I guess. It's
1: probably impossible to understand everything about what's going to happen in a scene because right. there are so many individual things that happen. Mm-hmm. It's possibly true that it could have been anticipated that her problems um, could have been talked about more in advance. Mm -hmm. And today we will certainly talk about those things. I mean, her main issue was with the fact that Ginger squirts or something like that. Yeah. some of the squirt um, is on Manuel's fingers and then he puts his fingers in her mouth or something like that. I don't know. I think that was her particular issue. Mm -hmm. And that particularly – will be talked about. I'm sure it's talked about all the time now, mm-hmm. but it's kind of hard to predict all of those things and whether or not they'll happen. First off, you don't even know if a girl's going to squirt or whatever. and then, Right. Um, I don't know what I would have done in that situation myself as a cameraman, mm-hmm. but I wasn't the cameraman on that set. Mm-hmm. Um, and because Ginger was – I mean, because Jenny was brand new, and mm-hmm. Ginger were brand new in that situation – A higher degree of caution. I've always exhibited with brand new people.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I know in Manuel's heart that he was not purposely trying to do something that Jenny would not like. In fact, he was trying to do the opposite. He was trying to do things that she would like. Right. And I take offense at the implication that me or Manuel or any director at Evil Angel is purposely trying to do something that offends or pushes a girl to do something that she doesn't want to do. That Mm -hmm. is an offensive concept to me. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Prove it because that's what you're saying. That's what you're implying by these implications. So those require some proof. And since nobody's been hurt on an Evil Angel set or Mm -hmm. talked about being hurt, Uh, in in a way where they were forced to do something. I don't say that somebody hasn't done anal sex and wound up being down for a few days or whatever because they pushed themselves too hard or because things went a little harder than they anticipated. Certainly that can happen and probably has happened. Mm -hmm. But no director has consciously hurt a girl on a set because that's what they wanted to do or for any reason whatsoever. Right. I I certainly would never tolerate that, not in myself or not in another director. So if you imply it, please give us an example and talk about it some more, or don't imply it because that's improper.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds just like it's it's all about a lack of communication.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's all there on video. Right. You can look at her reaction. You can look at me touching her butt.
0: I I watched it. It doesn't, it doesn't appear to be a scene where anybody appears uncomfortable, but of course it's impossible to know what's going on in somebody's head when that's happening. And, and like I said before, like I understand your position. It's like, you know, I kind of ride both sides because, like, as a woman, I understand what it's like to be in a situation where maybe you're uncomfortable, but you're uncomfortable saying you're uncomfortable. And then, like, in retrospect, you look at it and you think, God, I should have said something. And Ginger said that as much as well. She said, you know, I really should have said something at that moment. I should have um, stood up for myself at that moment. I just, you know, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't process it at the moment. So she she, she does, you know take some responsibility for that. But then also too, as a producer, I understand not being able to read somebody's mind. And I understand like not knowing exactly what they're thinking. And then if everything looks fine and everybody seems happy, you're going to assume everything is fine. And unless somebody says something to you at the moment, or maybe directly afterwards, how can you anticipate that they're going to be unhappy with that scene? So I understand your position as well. So I don't know what the answer well, well, Ginger is. Ginger
1: felt that her personal space was violated. And that is the explicit right. issue that we're talking about when people. Right. And, and I didn't want to violate her personal space. I had no desire to. I didn't want to force myself on her. I mm-hmm. got no pleasure out of doing that. But perhaps it does happen that some people enjoy doing that.
0: Right. Right. Okay. So this was a question for Dana. I know Dana Vespoli has a long-standing work relationship with John. I also know that she was married to Manuel and they co-parent. As a female director and performer with close personal relationships to these two men in particular, how did she deal with these allegations? Did she have talk with both of these men over these incidents? Um, Also, to what extent does she think these same alleged occurrences could happen on a female-directed set? And then she goes on by saying... I do not want these questions to seem like I am bashing Evil Angel or any of the aforementioned performers. In fact, most of Evil Angel's top directors and performers have my utmost admiration. It is just so complicated when these same people are accused of violating, bystanding, or non-reacting. So Dana says, Indeed, it is very complicated and most folks weighing in are either failing to recognize how nuanced it is or are a." obfuscating the issue. Wow, that, we just came across a word.
1: Obfuscating. We
0: just came across a word I didn't know. Obfuscating. It's oh a good word. Oh my God. It that made worked. me feel stupid. I am, of course, aware of the allegations against both Manuel and John. I am also aware that I am saying... That saying I've known both of them for over 16 years and have never experienced or witnessed nefarious actions from either of them can be construed as me being either complicit or bystanding. And finally, I am aware that not commenting on said allegations can be interpreted as me non-reacting. I suppose you can take your pick, as this is essentially a no-win situation. As for whether or not these same or similar allegations could happen on a female-directed set, they do and they have.
1: Well, let's just break this down for Mm -hmm. a second. Manuel was doing a scene. We'll talk about his scene, since it was arguably more strong than my situation, but it applies the same way. So you're saying that Jenny, who was in the scene, who knew what sex was, Mm -hmm. was surprised by something that happened, Mm -hmm. even though she didn't act surprised. Mm -hmm. So there was no way we could tell that she was surprised. Um. And that somehow went along with it because she felt intimidated.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Isn't it? I mean, the whole porn industry is based on consent. Right. It's based on the fact that there's nobody being brought and in, captured into slavery and then forced to make a right. porn scene. Right. I mean, none of that happens. And right. certainly not, I mean, maybe it's happened somewhere sometime. Maybe snuff films have been made. I don't know. But we certainly don't deal with that in our part of the business. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that this woman, Jenny, was in a situation where she felt intimidated and wanted to do a good scene and went along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that mind reading should we be required to do in a scene? Because even if you have a checklist on everything that happens, you can't possibly put down every little thing that happens in a sex scene. Right. You can put down a lot of stuff and probably you could put down what, what happened in that scene. But, but it'd be really hard to come yeah. up with every scenario. So what you have to assume in order to say that, that she was, in fact, assaulted or something in that situation was that she was not capable of consenting
2: mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's demeaning to women to
2: mm-hmm.
1: say that you if you're not capable of making a decision for yourself about what's going on and... To, if you weren't capable of understanding what was happening, that's insulting and demeaning to a woman, isn't it?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's that that that's my personal way of... Inter- I'm, I can certainly understand why somebody would say that, but I would certainly try and encourage my children to not put themselves in that situation. And certainly, if it was involving violence and where there was a potential of getting hurt and you didn't speak up when you could be hurt... Mm-hmm. That would be a bad thing. Right. What comes to mind is my daughter got out of this fucking thing we were driving on the beach, and there was a little bit of a tilt, and she said, Dad, I'm scared. I don't want to drive this anymore. And so she got out, and I'm very happy that my daughter had the courage to say, <laughs> Dad, I'm scared. I don't want to be in this anymore. Right, right. And, and let's just not do it. I, so, I mean, I assumed that she had the ability to do that, and certainly in the context of a family, whatever, it's more comfortable for somebody to do that. But if you're going to assume that somebody is not capable of making a decision for themselves,
0: mm-hmm. that's
1: insulting to the people making the decision.
0: Right. Right. I mean, I suppose all we can do is try to cultivate a set in an atmosphere where people feel comfortable and feel that they can, you know, articulate if they're not feeling comfortable or they want to change something or didn't want to do something and try to make sure that we have clear communication and talk about do's and don'ts. But I think ultimately this is, you know, something that's probably going to happen again at at some point. And, um, I don't know, it's tricky. It's tricky and it's tricky when you're dealing with sex too, because there's a lot, you know, some people have a lot of issues around that. And, um... I don't know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to navigate.
1: Issues, insecurities, am I living up to the image of what other people think I should do? This happens right. every day in all our interactions. It's going to happen today, probably. Yeah,
0: this is with true.
1: The, and it's happened with me, where I kept my mouth shut, and maybe I regretted it later.
0: Right.
1: It has happened. Yes. I know, so. Yeah. Um, the, but, but not in the case where I was actually going to get physically damaged mm-hmm. or hurt. It's happened more in in a situation where I've made the value judgment that going along was not that costly Mm
2: -hmm.
1: as that I would suffer permanent damage. And I think that is an assumption for almost, for most porn that shot, I Mm -hmm. I can't speak for other producers that might have some idea in their head that they want to push a girl and they want to see if she'll go along with it and won't say anything that may happen. I don't want that to happen on, on evil angel sets. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I hope it doesn't happen, but knowing human nature, I suspect that it's probably happened. Yeah. And we'll just try and keep
0: it to a minimum. Yeah. Is there anything that you would want to say to Ginger in particular if, if she was here?
1: Call me. Talk to me. No, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what happened? I I, I don't think that that it's good to make allegations that you won't back up to the face of the person that you've made the allegations to. Mm -hmm. And that I really am sorry if she had a misunderstanding and that she felt that her personal space was violated. Mm -hmm. It was not my intent. And I, I was trying to do a good scene and Mm -hmm. I thought we were all on the same page and I thought the scene came out pretty good. I think people work really hard and certainly That was the feeling we got on the set after the fact was that we had done a pretty good scene for our first scene for girls that were not necessarily lesbians or anything, but they did a good scene and we had fun. But if I misunderstood something, I'm sorry.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate you coming on and and talking about this. And um, I know it's an uncomfortable conversation to have and, you know, we all want to, go to set every day and have just uh, performers that are on board and everybody's happy and has a great scene and everybody walks away with a big smile on their face. But this is an industry that can be kind of tricky sometimes. And these problems do come up. And especially when you've been working in it as long as as you have. And, you know, as I have, um, I I think these issues are going to come up, but I think it's important to talk about consent and, and, to talk about communication and, um, it is an issue and it is an important one. So I appreciate you coming on to talk about that.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Is there, um, anything else that you want to talk?
1: Well, about, I was yes? quoted in Jezebel when we were talking about, um, the movie that I was doing called consent and mm-hmm. the, um, the writer <laughs> quoted me. Um, and it's, it, I thought she had written it herself. I I mis- misremembered it. That's another word. That's not really a word, but, um, where where i said something about well if there's a controversy and there's some difficulty i run towards it instead of away from it and <laughs> that i i can't say that i do that all the time but i would like to do that all the time and i think it's important to do that all the time
0: yeah yeah i agree so. Can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media? I know oh you are God, on Twitter. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm 67 years old. <laughs> what social media again? <laughs> oh, no, I don't want to be on Twitter. I have a Facebook page, but I haven't looked at it in years. But um, you
0: do have a Twitter.
1: And we do have a Twitter. And I have looked at my, is it DM, direct messages? Yes. I've read through them once or twice. I've even answered two of them or three. <laughs> <laughs> all of them. I'm sorry.
0: Do I have to? Well, how about Evil Angel? Evil Angel's got a social media presence.
1: Um, I would say that if you go on the the the, the, the Twitter that has my name on it, because we've got a couple of – they gave me an account that had like $100,000. I don't know what the hell we were thinking at the time <laughs> that I would – I thought maybe I would go on it. If there is a question – Please posit it to my social media people, and I will get back to you and say, this is for John, and John will answer it. And anything anybody wants to say, I will answer those questions, and I will talk to my social media person right when we get out of here, and I'll say, if somebody says that they have a question for John, give it to me so I can answer it. Okay. Okay.
0: Where, where are they going to do that, though?
1: I don't know. Evil you tell t-
0: <laughs> Twitter. I don't know. Why? So do I at, have to at Evil Angel?
1: Yeah. Okay. I can tell you what my email address is, and everybody will know it's really hard. It's john at evilangel.com. <laughs> so if you have a question, J O H N at evilangel.com, I'll probably have a lot more emails. and Whatever. I have to delete. I won't delete you. Just ask me a question. Or I'll look at my spam occasionally, too, and say, this is an important question for John. And I'll look at it and I'll answer it. Anything. Anything. Okay. okay. All right.
0: Thank you, John. We okay. really appreciate it. Um, you guys can find me at Holly Randall on Instagram and on Twitter. John, thank you again for coming out and telling your side of uh, what is a difficult conversation, but I appreciate it. No
1: problem. You having thank it. you very much.
0: For- okay. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. If you like my podcast, please make sure to give me a five star rating and review on iTunes. It helps me. A lot. If you're not listening to me on the iTunes platform, then you can support me in so many other ways. Um, first of all, obviously I would love it if you would join my Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Holly Randall Unfiltered, where not only will all of the donations that I get go towards making this podcast better, but also I offer really, really cool perks in exchange for your support. Um, Don't forget that I have a new podcast called My L.A. Porn Job that I am doing with my assistant Eva, and it is fucking hilarious. And it is available only on my Patreon for only $5 a month. So that's pretty, pretty cheap. And I promise we will make you laugh and we'll give you even more insight into this fascinating business that I work in. You can also join my Facebook group, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Holly Randall Unfiltered to get access to other exclusive news about the podcast, as well as just join our community. Don't forget too, that I videotape all of my podcast interviews and you can access all of those at my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash C slash Holly Randall Unfiltered. You can also email us. Holly Randall unfiltered at gmail.com. Or if you want to leave a voicemail to maybe ask a question for one of my upcoming guests, or just leave a comment or tell us a crazy story or anything that you want to say, you can call us at 424 216 6967. So please send us an email, leave us a Facebook message, leave us a Patreon message, um, leave us a voicemail, and we will maybe get back to you on the show, um, especially the new podcast that I'm doing with Eva. My LA Porn Job will definitely be uh, responding to some of your messages. And overall, we just want to hear back from you guys, want to know how we're doing, what you love about the show, what you hate about the show, who you want to listen to, All of that feedback is super valuable to help me make this show the best that it can be. One last piece of news. I plan on going to the 2020 AVN convention in Las Vegas, and I'm going to bring you this podcast live from the show floor. So that's another reason why I need your financial support, because that's going to be a very expensive trip for me. And, um, I'm definitely not making the kind of income from the show yet to cover it, which is fine, but I hope to eventually get there one day. And with your help, I hopefully will. So thank you all so much for listening. Thank you guys for supporting. I appreciate you so much. And, um, I'm still like kind of flabbergasted That this show has done as well as it has. And I'm just super grateful for all of you. Next week on the podcast, I have Amberly Rothfield on. Amberly is a phone sex operator who's also a bit of a marketing genius. And she's going to tell us basically about how to make the most out of your online career as a sex worker. She's filled with so much information that's so incredibly valuable and I'm really excited to pick her brain. So make sure that you come back next week for Amberly Rothfield on Holly Randall Unfiltered.